0: Turn to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 2, rather. We've seen in our study of Colossians so far that Paul has been making much of Christ. Uh, we've seen in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that Christ is declared to be the Redeemer, the, the one that forgives us of our sins. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20, the famous passage, he is Christ is exalted in his deity in every way, being the sovereign Lord of the universe being the creator and sustainer of the universe, as well as the head of his church. Chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, uh, Paul declares that Christ is the one who reconciles us from our sin. Formerly enemies of God, now we're his friends through the work of Christ on the cross. In chapter 1, verses 24 to 28, Paul reveals that the message he preaches to us is none other than Christ in you, the hope of glory. Chapter 1, verse 28 uh, Paul's goal is to present every man complete, every person, every believer complete in Christ in chapters 2 verses 1 to 5 Paul makes that great statement in verse 3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for Paul Christ was absolutely everything his whole life was all about the Lord Jesus Christ he summarizes his life in Philippians 1 where he says to me to live is Christ. That's what it was all about for Paul. And at every turn, he he doesn't miss a chance to exalt Christ in the book of Colossians. Now as we go on to the next section, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we move on to the next great subject. And what do you think that might be? Well, surprisingly, he returns to the subject of Christ once again. And he exalts him once again. He, He can't seem to get enough of Christ in talking about Christ. There was a pastor years ago in Dallas, Texas, by the name of W.A. Criswell. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, In the Baptist church there, a large, humongous Baptist church there, who was known for being an expositor back in that day. In fact, to such a degree that he not only preached consecutively, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible, he started from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, and preached through consecutive books of the Bible all the way through Malachi. And then started in Matthew and went all the way to Revelation, not missing a beat. Straight through the Bible he preached consecutively. In fact, the joke was members would join his church over those years, and, and someone would say, well, when did you join the church? And, and he would say, I joined in Isaiah. And somebody else said, I joined in 1 Timothy. And, and everybody knew, oh, it was about approximately this year when you joined then, because he was in I- Isaiah at that time. But... He preached through the Gospels, straight through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, most guys, if they're going to do that, will preach through maybe Matthew. They'll lay off the Gospels for a while, and they'll go, and that's fine. They'll go to, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians or whatever. But Chriswell preached through Matthew, and then he preached through Mark, and then he preached through Luke, and then he preached through John. And someone said to him, uh, Pastor Chriswell, do you ever get tired of preaching through the Gospels like that? Four Gospels in a row. He said, you know what? He says, I love preaching through the Gospels like that because it gives me a chance to everlastingly brag on Jesus. I can brag on Jesus every week when I'm in the Gospels. And that's what Paul did. He was constantly bragging on Jesus, and we don't mind bragging on Jesus either here at this church, week after week. Tonight's text is Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, and it is a transitional point in Colossians, and we're really entering to the heart of the letter here as he starts to discuss Throughout the rest of this chapter, he's warning the Colossians about the heresy that is prevalent in Colossae here. Tonight's message concerns living under the lordship of Christ as we transition to another subject. Living under the lordship of Christ. And I'm going to read Colossians 2, 6, and 7, but I'm going to throw verse 8 in there as well to give you an idea of what's coming in the future here and why he says some of the things he does. So let's read Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8. He says there, Therefore, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ." We first of all want to see the command to live under the lordship of Christ in verse 6. The command to live under the lordship of Christ in verse 6. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. That word therefore is a transitioning word, transitioning to the new section. He says in so many words here in this verse, since the Colossians have demonstrated their faith in Christ. Look at the last part of verse 5. He says, I rejoice to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. It's obvious they've demonstrated their faith in Christ. He says, since they've done that, they are now to continue to live their lives centered upon Christ. In other words, as they have have begun in their lives as believers, they are to continue. He says that they have received Christ Jesus the Lord. But what does Paul mean by receiving Christ? It's popular nowadays to say, when we talk about this, people say, have you received Christ into your heart? And you You know the language that's used normally. And it is true that at some time in our life as believers, we have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and that is involved in the the concept of this word receiving. But the word received here in verse 6 is somewhat of a technical term, meaning to receive something delivered by tradition. It means to receive something delivered by tradition. And if you think that's rather odd, Paul uses this term elsewhere, this kind of idea elsewhere, Uh, in other verses, many verses, as a matter of fact. For example, he says in 1 Corinthians 11.2, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I deliver them to you. 1 Corinthians 11.23, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received same idea. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the tra- traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from us. So he talks about this idea of receiving traditions. Now, there are good traditions in the world, and there are bad traditions. For example, the Catholic Church says they rely on two sources of authority. They say that their sources of authority are the scriptures and tra- tradition, church tradition. Uh, we know as, as believers in Christ, we only have one source of authority, and that's the Word of God, right? But they say they have both. But the fact of the matter is, the main source of authority in the Catholic Church, let's be real here, is tradition, right? It, it supersedes the scriptures and everything else. They always fall back on that. The Bible is more of an addition to what they believe and held at arm's length in many ways. But the Catholics, can, their, their traditions can be traced throughout the centuries, that they've added on to the teachings of the Word of God. For example, the doctrine of papal infallibility, the fact that popes speaking in a certain context, uh, when they talk about Catholic doctrine, uh, speak without any uh, error, they, they don't, they're, they're preserved from error when they say certain things in that, in that context. Well, that doctrine wasn't established until 1870. Added many, many centuries later on, after the New Testament was written. What about Mary? The doctrine of, we've mentioned this before in church, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Mary was the idea that Mary was born sinless, not Christ. Mary was born sinless. That was established by a pope in 1854, that doctrine. Several centuries after the New Testament. What about the Assumption of Mary? The fact that Mary was raised from the grave shortly after she died, and then she was enthroned as the Queen of Heaven? Well, that didn't—that wasn't pronounced by a pope until 1950. And so, obviously, these traditions have nothing, no root in the Word of God. We know that, no basis in the Word of God. They're concocted by men over the centuries who see, um, who see things in the lens of, uh, Catholic, through, the, through the lens of Catholicism, right? And so they add these traditions. Over and over again, many, many traditions in the Catholic Church. You can look them up in their history books. They talk about them. They think it's a good thing. But that's where tradition is actually a bad thing. But tradition can be a good thing as well. In fact, when it comes to the gospel, it's vital that we carry on the traditions that were handed down to us by the apostles from the Lord. As Acts 2.42 says, that the early believers were continually devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, right? That's a tradition that we must always adhere to because the apostles' teaching is, in effect, the teaching of the word of God. And so it's a good tradition, a right tradition. It's one that honors God. And so to receive Christ in, in, in Colossians 2.6 is not only a matter of believing in him, being committed to him, but it also involves being committed to the apostles' teaching about Christ and the significance that brings to us as well. How is Christ referred to in verse 6 is very interesting. Mike talked about uh, the lordship of Christ this morning quite a bit, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, that's a common theme around here. I realize that. But to hit it hard twice in a row on, on a Sunday is interesting. He says here, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The literal trans- uh, translation of this is very emphatic. It's, it's literally this. As you have received the, the Christ... The Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It's a very emphatic statement here. In other words, Jesus Christ is Lord, no doubt about it, and we, the Colossians, and and us as well in our time, have entered into his lordship. We are under the domination and the lordship of Christ. Now, there's a controversy you're all aware of, probably, in in, in our uh, realm here uh, uh, that's been around for years called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. You know what, Mike and I have talked about this on different occasions. I've told him several times, I've never liked the term Lordship Salvation. I've never liked that term, because salvation simply means Christ is Lord. It's a redundant term to use to say Lordship Salvation. And you guys all know that MacArthur's written two books on the subject, uh, Gospel According to Jesus and the Gospel According to the Apostles, I believe. And you know what he says in his book, the Gospel According to the Apostles? He says, I don't like the term Lordship Salvation either. He didn't like it either. And I've always found it unnecessary to use the term. As I say, it's redundant. I mean, salvation is, salvation means Christ is Lord. That's how it is. We don't need to say Lordship Salvation. I know why he says it. He's he's waging a theological battle against those who say it's not that way. I understand why he's doing it. In fact, MacArthur defines Lordship Salvation in the following way. He says this, The gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. That's his very brief definition, as he calls it, of lordship salvation. The gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. And one of the things those guys on the opposite side of the fence don't like is that you have to repent of your sin. They think that's a work added to salvation, although Christ and the apostles and the prophets in the Old Testament and everybody through the Bible says it over and over again, you must repent of your sin. And so the New Testament teaches that when uh, the Lord saves a person, Christ is his Lord, Christ is her Lord. That's what it teaches very plainly. No other teaching in the New Testament. In fact, it's just blatantly obvious that that's what it says. Not even up for discussion. And quite honestly, anybody who doesn't see that either hasn't read the New Testament or doesn't understand what it says. I just don't get it, why this is even a controversy at all. Christ is Lord. That's how it is. And you say, well, what if someone doesn't agree with that? Well, they don't agree with God. That's not one of those non-negotiable, that's not one of those uh, rather uh, uh, negoti- nego- negotiable issues like uh, we talk about, you know, the doctrine of last things. And we say, well, you know, if you don't agree with us 100% on that, you know, we'll live through it. But not the fact that Christ is Lord. We can't, we can't uh, disagree on that and, and have fellowship because Christ is Lord. The follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is submissive to the authority of his master. And a true believer is going to demonstrate his salvation by being obedient to his Lord. That's what it says in the Bible. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so what you often hear preached from the pulpit, pulpits of America, and what the scripture says about this matter are two different things. Christ is Lord and our lives belong to him. Our lives are at his disposal. That's what it says. It's not complicated, is it? It's very easy, but we like to rationalize it and make excuses for ourselves. Well, Paul talks a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ in his writings, but in no other place in the New Testament does he use this particular construction, the Christ, Jesus the Lord. It's the only place he uses it. And Paul wants to emphasize the fact that Jesus is Lord, and he says it here very strongly. It's all about the Lordship of Christ. Our lives are to be centered upon the Lordship of Christ. And this is a constant theme of Paul's. He says in Romans 10:9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12:3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, Paul says, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Philippians 2.11 Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many think this was an early Christian confession, the idea that Jesus Christ is Lord, and people would confess that as believers. Certainly any true Christian would be glad to confess that, right? That Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know why they wouldn't be glad to confess it, unless they're not Christians after all. And so... What what Paul is saying here in Colossians 2.6, this being a transitional point in the letter, is is that uh, he's simply repeating what he's already said in chapter 1. To say that Jesus Christ is Lord, in this verse here, as he transitions over to a new idea here, is to say that he is the image of the invisible God, like he said in Colossians 1. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that he's firstborn over all creation, that he's the head of the church that he is the mystery of God which Paul preached. Paul connects what he said before with what's coming after in the letter with the central idea of the Christ, Jesus the Lord. Paul prayed earlier in, in chapter 1 that the, the Colossians would please God in all respects. Now he says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, the Lord, so walk in him. This is the command, walk in him. It's the command in the verse. We said that this was, this was the command he says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so, the command imperative, walk in him. This is how I want you to walk. This is how I want you to live. And you all know the word walk is used to describe how a person conducts his life, his lifestyle, his conduct, in and in his daily living. Some Bible versions translate this as something to the effect of live your life, live your life uh, in, in Christ. Um, we know that believers are those who walk with God, right? We seek to keep in step with the Spirit. We walk with God. And this command to walk with God is one that is continual. It's today, it's tomorrow, it's every day of our lives that we walk with God. We wake up tomorrow, we we know that our conduct should be a God-glorifying one. But notice the phrase carefully. What does it say in verse 6? It says, walk in him. Walk in him. That's very interesting. Uh, We know that, uh, for example, we, we think of guys in the Old Testament like Enoch, who, of whom it was said, Enoch, walk with God, right? But here he's saying, walk in him. Walk in him. What does it mean to walk in Christ? It means that our lives are incorporated in Christ. We are living in union with him. We're to remain centered upon him. He's a sum and substance of our very living, of our lives. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1:21: For to me, to live is Christ. And so Paul says, you've received Christ as Lord, now you're to continue to walk in him as Lord. He is the Lord of our lives from beginning to end. There's never a time when he's not. You don't make him Lord at some other time in your life, a a decision you make later on. He's always Lord from beginning to end of your Christian life. And that is the command to live under the Lordship of Christ. And then secondly, in verse 7, the characteristics of living under the Lordship of Christ. The characteristics of living under the Lordship of Christ. How do we walk in Christ? After all, this is a command, right? He says, walk in him in this way. But Paul doesn't leave us hanging on how to do that. He tells us in verse 7 how to walk in him. He gives us four characteristics that help, helps to understand what it means to walk in Christ. The first three are all kind of they're, they're together. Uh, and uh, they're passive words that show that God has been at work among the Colossian believers. The first two are metaphors or word pictures that help us to understand what it means to walk in him. The first characteristic comes from the world, world of horticulture. Boy, what a word that is. I wish they'd get rid of that word because it's hard to say. And the second uh, characteristic from the world of architecture, much easier word. You say, well, you know, why does he do that? Go from one to the other. And that's not unusual for Paul. He does it in 1 Corinthians 3 as well. Remember he says there, Horticulture, he says, I've planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Same chapter, he says, as a wise master builder, I've built, I've laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon that foundation. So he uses the same thing there, those two ideas. And so Paul is not, you know, it's not unusual for, for Paul to mix metaphors. It's not really acceptable in the English language. I'm not sure if it's acceptable in the Greek language or not, honestly, but... He does it all the time. must be acceptable, I guess. What does it mean to walk in Christ? It means, first of all, that we are firmly rooted. We are firmly rooted. He says in verse 7, walk in Him having been firmly rooted. And this is speaking of a settled condition. The Colossian believers have been firmly rooted in Christ, just like a tree has deep roots in the ground. So a believer has deep roots in Christ, deeply rooted in Christ. You remember the parable of the sower and the soils and the seed and Uh, Matthew 13 and Mark 4 there are those who hear the gospel and the word of God goes out and it falls on the hard ground and takes no root at all and the birds of the air eat it up and then the second hearer comes along and he hears the word of God the seed falls on the rocky ground where there is no according to the text in Mark 4 there is no depth of soil and then other seed falls on thorny ground and no fruit comes up from that but there there is the good soil where seed falls on and it takes firm root, and, and fruit, fruit is produced from that. And that last illustration is what happened in Colossae. Uh, fruit was produced. Look at Colossians 1.6 again. The gospel has come to you, Colossians, just as it has in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as been, it's, it's been doing in you since the day you heard of it. So this last illustration was true of the Colossians. They were the real deal. They were the true believers in Christ. They were rooted in Christ. And they had fruit of salvation to show it in their lives. None of this business of, you know, supposedly someone gets saved and then there's no fruit in their life at all, which is typical of of many churches in America. And none of that at all. They were the real deal here. So Paul says to them, to the Colossians, you received Christ, you've been firmly rooted in him. Due to the fact that you understood the grace of God and truth, he says in Colossians 1, so continue to walk in that truth, in that truth. See, he knew they were facing ungodly teaching, false doctrine, false teaching. And so he wants to make sure that their roots are deep in Christ, firmly rooted in Christ. You know, it reminds me of John 15 where it talks about the vine and the branches, that Christ is the vine and and the believers are the branches. And what does he say there? He says to abide in the vine because we get our nourishment from Christ, right? We draw our strength and our nourishment from Christ who is the vine. And, you know, we were planted by God in Christ. God is the one that planted us in Christ. I love the verse in Matthew 15:13 when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. And I think his disciples say to Christ, aren't you afraid you've offended them? And listen to what he says. He says, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Once again, another verse showing the sovereignty of God in salvation. God is the one who plants us in Christ. So Let me ask you a question. Has God planted you in Christ? Be has, then let your roots go deep in Christ. Be nourished on Christ so you won't be weak and sickly and pray for false teachers, false doctrine when it comes along. It's going to come along. Some guy comes along looking, looking like a minister of the gospel, and you fall prey to him because he's tricking you with his false doctrine that's why you should let your roots go deep in christ you say how do i know if my roots are deep well let me ask you this question are you bearing fruit are you bearing fruit for christ psalm one teaches that the person who meditates on the word of god is like a tree planted by the rivers of water whose leaf doesn't wither he is he's uh, he's uh yielding his fruit in its season whatever he does prospers he's spiritually prosperous And so this is what we want to be. We want to let our roots go down deep in Christ and be strong in the Lord, right? What does it mean to walk in Christ? It means we are firmly rooted. And our lifestyle, Paul said, should correspond to that idea, walk in that idea. Secondly, it means we are being built up. We're being built up. This is a term from the world of architecture. He says, now being built up in him in verse 7. It means to build on something or to build further. We're rooted in Christ, now we are building on, the, uh, on Christ. And the Lord started this process by, by rooting us in Christ. Now he works in us day by day to make us more like Christ. This is the idea of sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ more and more each day. And this is where a lot of people don't, uh, what, what they don't understand. They're told to you know, receive Christ, not in the sense that we said earlier, but in, in a superficial sense. And they make some decision that's weak, they don't know what they're doing, they don't understand it, and their life doesn't change at all. And it's totally the opposite of what it says in Colossians. Colossians says that we are being being built up in him. And by the way, sanctification is not only the work of God, it's it's our our responsibility as well, whereas the work of salvation is totally of God. Sanctification involves God and us. He says that we're being built up in him, but he says walk this way, (laughs) walk in him, And so we have that dual role in sanctification. We play our role as well. And uh, we're building on Christ. We're in union with him. You know, um, one thing, uh, you know, and this is not an easy process of being built up in Christ. It's it's difficult. There's difficulties along the way. There's trials that come our way. You know, one thing that I think all of us hate to see when we're driving on the road is a road under, under construction, right? It's the last thing I want to see. You're trying to get somewhere. And all of a sudden, the inevitable road under construction sign, you see. And you think, oh, no, i got to go ten miles out of my way to wherever to get to somewhere else. And I always hate to see it. It's such an inconvenience, right? But that's how believers in Christ are. We're always under construction. God's always working with us. And in our case, there's no end to construction until we reach heaven. He's We're in this building up in the uh, in the body of Christ. So be prepared for inconveniences in life and disruptions, and difficulties, and trials, and tribulations, because this is a maturing process being built up in him. There used to be a button that uh, was popular years ago that uh, some of us proudly wore. (laughs) Maybe not so proudly anymore, but it said on there, all it said was letters on there. Uh, Maybe you wore this button years ago, I don't know. It said, P-B-P-G-I-N-F-W-M-Y. And people would come up to you and say, what, what, is, what does this mean, all these initials or these, all these letters on your button here? And it meant simply this, please be patient, God is not finished with me yet. Please be patient, God is not finished with me yet. And you know, I want to tell you that, be patient with me, because God's not finished with me yet. He's, he's building me up in Christ. And you're going to see weaknesses and flaws as we go along here, and I'm asking you to be patient with me. And I'm asking you to be patient with everybody else in the body of Christ as well. Because you see a new believer, and you think, why isn't this new believer progressing rapidly in Christ? You know what? Be patient with him. Be patient with that person. Give them time. God's working in that person's life. Allow God to work in that person's life. He's building them up in the faith. May not get there as fast as you did. Be patient with those who have been in Christ for a long time. Maybe they're not progressing like you want them to. But be patient with each other, because... We're in this building program, and none of us, guess what? None of us have arrived, and none of us will arrive in this life. And the great thing about this building program of Christ is that it's sourced in Christ. It's sourced in Christ. We're being built up in him. You know, being built up in Christ is strong protection from the influences of of the false teachers that are coming, that that we're, we're there in Colossae at the time. And that's what Paul's leading up to, strong protection against that we've referred to Acts chapter 20 several times already. There's a reason for that. It's a similar subject. Paul's addressing the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And he's warning against false teachers there. He says, be, be, beware of them. They're not going to spare the flock. We said last time we were together that he called, he called the false teachers savage wolves. They're coming in to destroy the flock beyond the alert. Then in the very next verse, verse 32, he gives them this sound counsel. He says this, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to what? Build you up. The word of his grace is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How can we counteract the influences of the false teachers, this pack of wolves running wild? How can we counteract that? We're built up in the word of God, right? We said this sanctification was a twofold process. God is working in us, and we are also taking our responsibility to come to the Word of God and being built up in it. So we take Paul's advice and we're becoming strong in the Word of God. John 17, 17. Sanctify them, Jesus said, in your truth. Your Word is truth. And So we're told to walk in Christ in Colossians 2, 6. The second way we can do that is, is by being built up in Him. Thirdly, it means this idea of walking in Christ, the characteristic, it means we're, we're established in the faith. We're established in the faith. In other words, we're firm in the faith. By the way, in, In verse 7 there, where it says established in your faith, literally it is established in the faith. We're solidly grounded in the faith, confirmed in the faith. And this is what happens when your roots go deep and you're being built up. You're confirmed and established in the faith. What what is the faith here, the faith? It's the Christian faith. It's what we believe. It's it's the teaching, the content of the teaching that, that Epaphras delivered to the Colossian believers. And he adds that phrase, In verse 7, just as you were instructed, just as you were instructed, instructed by who? Well, we just said in Colossians 1-7, Epaphras, it says, just as you learn the gospel from Epaphras, he's the one who taught them the word of God, and because he did, they were being established in the faith. You know, one of the instruments that God uses uh, in his church to instruct believers in the faith, or to help believers be grounded in the faith, is, is teachers. He's called pastors and teachers to do this job of instructing. Teachers instruct people in the Word of God. The church hears the instruction. Then we engage. We're engaging in the process of becoming established in the faith. And that's why it's important to avail ourselves of the opportunity to come to church to hear the Word of God taught. This is the way that God has ordained His church to operate, and this is what Epaphras did for the Colossian believers. These three terms, firmly rooted and built up and established in the faith, they all speak of strength. They all speak of, of stability. And as we walk in Christ, we are being reinforced in the truth. We're being strengthened in the, in, the, in the faith. And believers who walk in Christ, like Ephesians 4 said, they're no longer children tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. Uh, by, and it goes on to say, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You're not tossed, tossed about like that. You know where you stand in the Word of God. And you understand what it says. You believe it. You stand on it firmly. And so you're establishing the faith. And this is what Colossians 2 warned us about. Colossians 2.4 says, I say this that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Paul's concerned that people would delude these believers with some persuasive argument. You know, there's arguments that false teachers present that are very appealing, but they're opposed to the gospel. And so he says, don't be taken in by that. Be, be strong in your faith. You know, when I read Colossians 2, 6, and 7, I am, I'm reminded of Colossians 1, 28, of the same idea that every man, and every, every person, every believer is to be presented complete in Christ. And that's what it reminds me of. And this is what, our, what we want our lifestyle to be like. We want it to be rooted. We, we, we are rooted in Christ. If we know him. We're, we want to be built up in him. We want to be established in the faith, just as we were taught. And then fourthly, it means we are overflowing with gratitude, overflowing with gratitude. Now, if you look at the first three characteristics, they, they are together in the verse. The fourth one's kind of after that, after this uh, phrase that's thrown in, just as you were instructed, and then overflowing with gratitude. And uh, it's almost as if it's out of place. Paul says, I want you to be strong in the faith, firmly grounded, and, and rooted, and being built up. Oh, by the way, don't while you're at it, don't forget to be thankful. It seems to be a totally different idea at first glance. But you know what? As the more I thought about it, I realized to be grateful, to be overflowing with gratitude is never out of place. It's always a part of what we do in, in our lives as, as believers. It's a very necessary element in our lives. And this is the theme that Paul refers to, uh, returns to constantly, this idea of thanksgiving. You remember that? Look at chapter 1, verse 3. He says in 1, 3... We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Verse 12, we're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And I think six or seven times in this letter, he mentions this idea of thanksgiving, this idea of gratitude. But here in this verse, it's not simply the idea of gratitude, but he says to be overflowing with gratitude, overflowing with it. Now, that's not normal, is it? To be overflowing with gratitude, you might think an occasional, you know, uh, thank you to the Lord might be, you know, in order. But to be overflowing with gratitude, the tendency is to complain, isn't it, all the time, and to, and to be to groaning under the pressures of life. But God's people are different, and we're called upon to be overflowing with gratitude, to be excelling, to excel in the in the business of being grateful to God. And that's something that we all struggle with because what, what comes out of our mouth normally? Complaint, uh, how, how woe is me, how difficult things are. But the Colossians had much to be thankful for. If you think about it through chapter 1, they could be thankful for the fact that the gospel came their way and was bearing fruit in their lives. It's a great thing, a great thing to be thankful for. They could be thankful for the person and work of Christ that Paul lays out very clearly for them. They could be thankful that they were no longer the enemies of God but his friends because Christ had reconciled them. They could be thankful for the ministry of Paul and the ministry of, uh, in writing this letter, and the ministry of Epaphras and preaching to them the gospel. Much to be thankful for in their lives. It was not too much to expect that they should be overflowing with gratitude. And Paul tells them that. Well, what about us? Is it just the Colossians? Was it just for them to be overflowing with gratitude? What about us? Shouldn't we also be overflowing with gratitude as well? This ought to affect how we live also. You know, if you think about it, if we could only get a hold of this concept of being overflowing with gratitude, it would be revolutionary in our lives. It would give us, the reason why, it would give us the perspective the Lord has on everything. To be thankful for all the things. I'm reminded of the top of my head, the, uh, I think about the uh, uh, sons of Israel in the wilderness who, um, when the manna was raining down from heaven upon them day after day after day after day, they were saying, we got to keep eating this manna became commonplace, old, took it for granted, instead of being thankful for this tremendous miracle that took place all that time. So we should be overflowing with with gratitude. Well, I guess if we were to get anything out of this letter at all, I would say it would be this. We should realize that Christ Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. He's Lord of our lives. And Paul goes to a great effort to point that out in this book and in this These two verses in verses 6 and 7. God in his mercy has caused us to enter into the lordship of Christ. And he's allowed us to receive the teaching of the gospel. And so therefore he says, live accordingly. In other words, remain centered on Christ. This is how you started. This is how you continue. This is how you finish. You remain centered on Christ. Remain centered on him as Lord. We must always be aware that our roots are deep in Christ. And that... We're not like a weed that can be pulled easily out of the ground, but like a strong oak that's deeply rooted in Christ. We're in the process of being built up in him. And we participate in this process as well. We're being established in the faith. And that keeps us from becoming easy prey for false teachers and false doctrine. And so what other response can we have than to be overflowing with gratitude, right? Overflowing with gratitude. So Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you tonight for your word. Thank you once again for instruction in your word. We pray that we would uh, focus on the idea of the lordship of Christ in our life because that's what it is all about. We pray we would be those who would be submissive to your authority always, willing to be obedient to you, um, willing to carry out your will, uh, willing to die for you if need be. And We just pray that uh, as you are Lord over all things, as Mike spoke about this morning, we pray that we would... Uh, Worship you as Lord, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.